Hello and welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles. Joining me this week is Wes Hillier. Thanks for joining me, Wes. Hey, Stephen. Hey, and you uh, settling into your new setup over there? I saw you uh, tweeting pictures of your your new, I guess, desk area. Is that what you got? Well, uh, the first one you might have seen is my desk I brought from Virginia. Most recently, I tweeted a picture of me getting my Mac Mini set up for the first time in about a month, trying to hide it in a corner of my living room. That's right. That's right. The Mac Mini. And, you know, we were kind of having a little discussion on Twitter this past week about trying to use a Mac as a secondary display. I'm going to do a call out to all of our listeners. If you know how to do this, Uh, you had recommended Duet Display. And I've now tried Luna Display and Duet Display. And I actually have the Luna Display dongle. And it it works wirelessly. What I'm trying to do is use my 16-inch MacBook Pro and have a secondary display being my iMac. I have a 2015 Retina 4K iMac. And I'm trying to use the iMac as the display. And Duet Display and Luna Display will work wirelessly, but they do not work wired. They're a little laggy when you use it wirelessly, both of those products. So I'm trying to use it wired, and I've not found a solution. So listeners out there, if you know of a way to hardwire and use an iMac as a secondary display, I would love to hear it. Tweet at me, at Stephen Robles, and I'd love to hear it. But there's that. And also, if you did not catch it, there was a special episode of the podcast that got released earlier this week, this past Monday. I actually had developer, founder and CEO of Rogue Amoeba Software, Paul Kafasis. He was on the show and he did an interview with us talking about App Store policies, his experience with the Mac App Store, some of his struggles and how he feels about the percentage share and all of that stuff that came out during the antitrust hearing as well. So I encourage you, if you haven't listened to that episode, it's in the feed. It's ac- it was actually episode 300, didn't even realize. Be sure to check that episode out as well. Well, we have a ton of news this week. Let's jump into it. First of all, the iMacs got a refresh, and I saw John Prosser. You know, he's he's always on that Twitter. He's being active. And, you know, he had predicted this, I think, did it happen Tuesday that the iMacs got refreshed? Yes, uh, Tuesday around noon, actually, very random time. Right. So he tweeted out that morning saying iMacs are dropping today. It was 20 minutes before the Macs launch. He, he beat it by about the amount of time it takes to write an article <laughs> about it. So Okay. Yeah, we were racing against them. <laughs> it, beat us, it beat it by 20 minutes. But, you know, unfortunately, this was, I didn't really have this in the notes to talk about, but John Prosser, you know, he has the YouTube channel. I think it's Front Page Tech. Unfortunately, his account was actually hacked, his Google account, and his entire YouTube channel and all of his videos were completely deleted. Uh, his channel just disappeared. He didn't have access to it. He's been tweeting back and forth with YouTube about trying to get it recovered. But as far as I could tell, up to this point, they have not restored or uh, we don't know if they'll be able to uh, all the videos from that channel. So cautionary tale, you know, what would we say about John Prosser? We we feel for you on that, man. And uh, hopefully it can get it resolved and you can get those videos back. I don't even know if that's a thing that YouTube can do. Have you? Do you know of any case of someone having their channel or videos deleted and YouTube restoring it for them? This is um, happening to uh, quite a lot of channels. Doesn't seem to be anything too high uh, reaching or anything like that. But combined together, it's reached you know over a hundred thousand people. Uh, these hacks, uh, they always display some weird QR codes trying to get you to send them Bitcoin. Right. And they, yeah, like you said, they went in and deleted all of his videos. Now the page is just gone. It seems that YouTube, as a reaction to the hack, uh, removed it from being live until they could figure things out. I've never heard of like the after effects of such a hack, uh, like what YouTube's going to do to try and fix this 
if it's fixable or if there's backups. Right. So, well, we'll, we'll see. Um, yeah, he's been tweeting about it pretty consistently, really trying to get YouTube to move on it. So, uh, but anyway, we'll link to John Prosser and you can check him out. Go to the appleinsider.com article, the podcast article, and we'll put a link to him so you can follow his tweets. But the reason why we got to that is because he beat the iMac launch by 20 minutes, but Apple refreshed their iMac line both the 21 and a half inch, 27 inch, and the iMac Pro, there was not a redesign. Basically what happened is the 21 and a half inch and 27 inch iMacs, the Fusion Drive, as far as I could tell, is now gone, even from the base models. I don't think it's it's an option anymore. The 21 and a half inch iMac can be configured with a one terabyte Fusion Drive at the highest end. Okay. That's it. That's the only one left. Okay. Right. And so the, the 27 inch iMac, it now is an SSD storage on all levels. It starts out with 256 gigabyte SSD, and you can upgrade that all the way up to eight terabytes now, which is a higher ceiling for storage uh, than it was previously. So again, no design refresh, but it got a spec bump and now has Intel's 10th generation processors, and you can spec it out a little more. And what's interesting is the iMac Pro, I don't even know if we're considering this a model refresh. I'm not sure if It'll even be like a 2020 model. But basically, the base model for $5,000 is now the 10-core Intel chip as opposed to the 8-core, I believe. What's most interesting is we actually have a comparison article, and there'll be a link in show notes. I encourage you to check it out. We compare the new or refreshed 27-inch regular iMac, specking it up to $5,000, matching it with the iMac Pro base model. So you're looking at the same cost and honestly, the regular 27-inch iMac is almost a more appealing product. The biggest difference is, you know, the iMac Pro is using Intel's W chips, and the 27-inch iMac non-Pro is, you can spec it up to the Intel i9. So it is a different processor. But for the same price, you actually both get 32 gigabytes of RAM in both machines, decent video card. And there's also features that the new 27-inch iMac has that the iMac Pro does not. Like there's a new nano texture glass option on the 27-inch and it comes with a true tone display. And the FaceTime camera has also been updated to a 1080p. So I thought this is an interesting, you know, upgrade on the 27-inch models and almost starting to obfuscate the need for an iMac Pro. What do you think about that? There's a couple of weird things here. So first of all, the iMac Pro is old enough that it still can't run full 6K uh, Pro Display XDR. And I think the right. the 10 core processors they're getting in this it still can't do that. So that's a very weird omission that they, they, the Pro iMac can't run the Pro Display XDR. Right. And on top of that, the iMac Pro has a completely redesigned internal space for cooling because of the uh, system architecture in there and the uh, higher powered graphics cards. But um, it seems that the 27-inch iMac that Apple just released still has the same internal design. We we haven't confirmed that, but it seems to be the case. So the question is, is what exactly makes the iMac Pro a pro machine? Is it the space gray color? I mean... <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> at, at the end of the day, it, it seems that um, Apple's obviously moving away from the line, but this is also a greater sign of what's to come with the uh, Apple Silicon transition. That is true. I wonder, yeah, when Apple Silicon comes to desktops, if they'll, iMac Pro will slip into the night, which would be very strange. I mean, they have a 2017 version of the iMac Pro and maybe 
not another one, which is pretty curious. But the new 27-inch, you know, if you spec that out, again, you can get up to 8 terabytes of SSD storage on the regular 27-inch iMac. You can get up to 128 gigabytes of RAM. And again, you have several video card options. I mean, that 27-inch can really get beefed up if you're wanting an iMac. Uh, I would almost say, you know, really look at that uh, before the Pro because you can actually maybe save a little money and have a really powerful machine. Plus, you can get that nano-textured glass, which is interesting, on, on an iMac. But I know this doesn't tempt you because you're, you're an iPad guy. Right. It's just it's just strange because, I mean, the iMac uh, is a great machine. If I didn't have a Mac Mini, it would probably be an iMac as my next choice just because it's, you know, all-in-one. The great monitor comes with it. Apple's decisions around this update just uh, screams there's something else coming because, again, they they changed the naming scheme for uh no real good reason other than to bring it in line with the the rest of their naming, right? You, you get a 13-inch MacBook Pro right. or a 27-inch iMac now instead of the iMac 5K. So right. uh, moving away from resolution to inches, maybe they want to acknowledge that the next generation, maybe there's a redesign, bigger screens. They want you to see that in the naming scheme instead of it just being another iMac 5K. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too. If you go to, like, the Apple Store app on your iPhone or iPad, you know, they're really pushing the new 27-inch iMac as really being the new product. Uh, they're not even saying the 21.5-inch is necessarily new. There's just the new tag on the 27-inch. And honestly, it's kind of hard to find the iMac Pro until you really scroll down and, and go down to the uh, the more options. So, yeah, anyway, if you were in the market, you know, Tim Cook said we have Intel Macs coming down the line even after their Apple Silicon announcement at WWDC, and it looks like this was at least one of them. Uh, maybe this is the last Intel Mac coming out this year, but it's there available. So check out all the links. Again, we have that comparison to the 2020 versus 2019 iMac. That's a good comparison year over year. And the comparison of the $5,000 27-inch compared to the $5,000 iMac Pro 27-inch. So check out those articles. The links are in show notes and on appleinsider.com. Another big news that came out this past week was Phil Schiller. It was announced that he is going to become an Apple Fellow, and Greg Joswiak will actually be promoted to Senior Vice President of Marketing. Now, maybe in a moment you could tell me exactly what the term Fellow means. In this regard, they're saying Phil Schiller is still going to be over the App Store, at least overseeing the, the App Store operations and things like that. But uh, Jaws, or Greg Joswiak, will be over of the marketing that Phil Schiller was over for a long time. You have uh, some other fellows listed, previous Apple fellows. Even I didn't realize that Steve Wozniak was listed as an Apple fellow. But for Steve, I don't think Apple fellow really has any kind of uh, meaning in a sense of running of operations in the company. I don't think Steve Wozniak's involved with that, but it seems like Phil Schiller is. And, uh, you know, Phil Schiller's words were, you know, he turned 60 this year, and this was a planned change in a career and lifestyle, and he wants to spend more time with family, friends, and doing other things. So, you know, it seems like a very amicable, planned thing for a while. But do you know any more about that term, Apple Fellow? Well, this is all new to me, and it's, it's strange to be such a person like invested in Apple and have like seen a lot of the history and looked at some of the the writings and the uh, about the early days and this is the first time I've ever seen this term right a little bit of searching I found a description online uh, an Apple fellow is a person who's been recognized by Apple for their extraordinary technical uh, details or leadership and contributions to personal computing while at the company so hmm. like Steve Wozniak obviously being a co-founder and now right that's moving on to uh, Phil Schiller having been there for ages as this uh, SVP. 
the term doesn't seem to have any special uh, meaning. It doesn't offer any specific like thing other than they're given a part of the company as a, a bonus, un- unless I guess they already hold it. Outside of that, the what they get out of it or what um, responsibilities they have is dependent on the person. So obviously, Phil Schiller mm. is going to retain, uh, you know, hold of the App Store and Apple events uh, as oversight, but um, everything else right. is moving to Greg Joswiak. Yeah, so it's an interesting move. You know, I know I saw a picture kind of going around, and it was, I don't know from how many years ago, but it had Steve Jobs, Phil Schiller, Scott Forstall was in the picture, and it was basically all these Apple executives. And the only one that is still an executive as of this announcement is Eddie Q uh, from the time of Steve Jobs. And so he's the, he's the last one from that uh, picture that we've kind of seen around. And I'll put it in the show notes uh, so people can take a look at that. But you also had found, or you listed some of the other Apple fellows, and I've heard some of these names, but uh, any points of interest there these names sound familiar i know i've heard of bill atkinson yeah but like yeah rich page uh apparently he was around for uh, graphic development uh guy kawasaki he was a marketing specialist i guess he might have been behind that 1984 ad a little bit there's no through line or connection and it uh, all these people seem to have just disappeared off the face of the earth since leaving Apple. So right. some of them running their own companies or just uh, living in the money that they've earned from being a part of the company. But Phil Schiller seems to be the only Apple fellow uh, that is at the company with an active role. Right. It brings to question, what about Johnny Ive? And uh, why is this role avoided him? So, <laughs> Well, and that's, you know, when Johnny Ive left, he announced that he was going to be starting that design firm in the UK. I, f- I forget exactly what the name was going to be. Love From, I think. That's right. Yes. Love From. And honestly, I've not heard a single thing about his new endeavors or that company or anything coming out of there. So I'm not sure exactly what uh, what he's doing. He's trapped in the white room still. That's right. He's <laughs> trapped in the white room. You know, it was kind of funny when at WWDC, when they announced uh, Mac OS Big Sewer and all the design changes, they were really trying to mimic those kind of voiceovers that Johnny Ive used to do as they showed all the design changes and stuff. And I was like, you know what? Maybe find a different way to do that now. You know, that you've you've played that card for a long time. It can you can do it different. It's okay. So some other news that came out about the iPhone 12 and iOS 14. The iPhone 12, this was actually something that came out Thursday. It's a rumor, it's a supposed picture of the new iPhone 12 OLED screen. And typically when we come close to the announcements in September, we'll see leaks like this of screen sizes or body cases. And so we'll put a link in show notes to that. But, you know, it looks like it could be the new iPhone 12 screen. Some people have noted that this photo, I think the one you're talking about, has the same notch size, the same face ID components as the current models. Right. So maybe that smaller notch rumor isn't uh, coming up to snuff. Also, in regards to iOS 14, this was already announced at WWDC, or and we've covered it, but that Apple is going to allow third-party apps for web browsing and email to be set as the default apps. So come iOS 14, you'll be able to set, say, Gmail or Outlook as the default email application. And what that means practically is if you were browsing the web and you click a button that you know auto-populates an email, I assume it can mean that it can pull up Gmail now instead of the stock mail app, which is uh, what comes up by default whenever you click an email like, like, like that. And also that you can set a web browser as default. And Apple has kind of laid out very specific terms for these different apps if they want to be eligible 
for being set as the default. They have to meet a lot of different requirements. Again, they're all there in the article. But, you know, going back to the different app store policies and apps that are kind of shown or developers that are kind of shown favoritism, it'll be interesting if they make Google abide by all the same stipulations and rules that they make Hey.com or, you know, Spark email app and all that. Uh, Just different things that, uh, you know, they can't be doing any kind of tracking behind the scenes for third party web browsers. Uh, It has to function like when a user clicks a link, it has to bring them to the page that they're expecting and not go to something else, probably like a splash screen or advertisement first. For web browsers, there has to be a way for the user to enter a URL upon the app launch. So you can't like hide the address bar, I think, behind a bunch of other screens. So again, it'll be interesting to see if... Any apps get denied that ability to be set as default for third party or if there's any kind of favoritism shown? It's just funny to watch this wall slowly erode between um, official Apple apps and third party apps. I mean, if you look back, it started with uh, URL schemes, Apple saying, oh, well, if you want to integrate an app that links outward to a different app, well, you can do that yourself. So if you're Google uh, Gmail and you want to open Chrome, well, Gmail can do that by default. But you know, as soon as you leave that app and go anywhere else, you click a link, it's going to open in Safari. And uh, it seems Apple's finally going to let users um, change that in settings. Yeah, I'd be curious. I mean, I'll be honest, I use the Gmail app by default. So I'd be very interested to on day one, hopefully they update the app to be able to do that. Do you use a stock mail app, Gmail or, or something else? I switch way too often. It, right now I'm in the standard <laughs> mail app. Sometimes I'm using Canary and I, I do like having the ability to set custom swipe actions and like be able to swipe a certain way and have an email automatically populate in deliveries app and uh, save a note or something. Mm. And Apple's obviously missing um, any special functionality from their app. It's very bare bones. So Honestly, when you said Canary, I thought you were misspeaking. Uh, you were talking about the camera app for uh, camera security, but no, there's actually a Canary mail app too. I didn't know that. There's a lot of Canary apps. The Canary mail app is uh, actually really cool because it's one of the only ones I think that does the – uh, PGP encryption. If you want to add your own key, uh, you can do that. But I specifically use it because I, it's the only mail app I know of that does full-on dark mode and will actually invert the colors of an email if it's a plain white background. So that way you're not blinding yourself every time uh, you open an email. So you switch between these email apps that often, huh? Uh, I, I wouldn't say too often. Every month or a f- few, just if there's a new, <laughs> new uh, announcement from airmail saying, hey, we just implemented uh, cursor support. I'll go over there, check it out. Oh, yeah. Almost always end up back at the uh, default mail app because for some reason, some, somehow syncing gets off or right. I'll delete something, but it'll repopulate over and over again. Just these weird little bugs just never cease to come back. And uh, Apple Mail always seems to be the most stable here. Yeah. Now, Apple Mail on the Mac, I would say, I don't know. that For me, it has not been stable. I know you're using Mail on, on the iPad mostly. And I, I do find it on iPhone and iPad pretty stable. But on the Mac, it's been super buggy where I'll have to quit Mail on the Mac and reopen it uh, to get it to sync again. Well, I've heard other Mac users also having that issue. I know Marco Armand has complained about the Mail app on Mac as well. So I don't know. Hopefully with Big Sur, maybe we'll see some of those bugs get fixed. I think the bigger question here is, is is this just the first step from Apple on default apps? Are we going to see default calendar, default camera, default um, 
maps. You know, are people going to be able to set Google Maps as their default uh, maps app? Right. As soon as Apple crosses that line, then I guess it tosses everything into question um, of can can you just remove all system apps and do whatever you want with the phone? I don't know if Apple wants to cross into that territory coming so close to Android. But with these antitrust uh, complaints, I think uh, Apple's going to have their hand forced in some way and letting users be a little bit more custom with their phones. Yeah. Now I feel like the Maps app is probably going to be the last bastion that they release uh, to say that you can have a different default Maps app because they're really trying to, you know, better that service, but also use the data to better their Maps service as a whole. So uh, hopefully Calendar would be next. I know for me, I use Fantastic Cal on all my devices, and I'd love to be able to set that as the default for sure. This episode is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass is an online learning platform that has videos from some of the biggest names and you can learn from them personally. You can learn about the scientific method from Neil deGrasse Tyson. You can learn about skateboarding from Tony Hawk or drumming and percussion from Sheila E. And you can even learn about filmmaking from Martin Scorsese. I love Masterclass and I've already taken several courses myself. I did music composition for film with Hans Zimmer. I took Chris Voss's class on negotiation. And now I'm taking the classes from Neil deGrasse Tyson and Chris Hatfield. Chris Hatfield is an astronaut that spent some time up at the International Space Station. And he has a lesson that's about rockets and what it feels like during launch. And I love Masterclass because you can watch it or listen to it anywhere. Masterclass is available on all your devices, your Apple TV, your iPad, your iPhone, or you can just watch it in the web. And lessons are short, just about 10 to 20 minutes, and so you can watch a whole lesson in a course on your lunch break or just sitting at your desk. I love to maybe start it on my phone, and then if I get in my car to drive somewhere, I can flip it into audio mode and listen to the lesson as I drive. The production quality and video is incredible on all the master classes. There's actually a brand new class for dog training by Brandon McMillan. And this kind of video format is excellent for a class like that where you can really see what they are teaching. And in addition to the video lessons, Masterclass provides you with downloadable lesson recaps and supplemental materials to help you learn. I highly recommend you check out Masterclass. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass course available. And as an Apple Insider listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. So go to masterclass.com slash Apple Insider. That's masterclass.com slash Apple Insider for 15% off Masterclass. Our thanks to Masterclass for sponsoring this show. The first contact tracing app has launched and this actually happened in Virginia here in the United States. And again, the contact tracing is something that in behind the scenes, I think it was iOS 13.6 where the capability was back in there. Uh, but now there's the first app. You do need an app to be able to use the API. And this was developed in conjunction with Apple and Google. And so, but you had some information about this specific app and what was going on. So why don't you tell us about it? So this is the first one to launch in the United States uh, in Virginia. COVID Wise is the name of the app. You'll see the link in the show notes. Very bare bones. It's literally just open it. It describes what the app does. You turn on a feature and that's it. It 
and it runs in the background. That's the whole point of the app. You're not sharing your information, like your personal identity with it. It's just exchanging tokens with other people who also use the app. So it's been said that about you know, 90, 95% adoption of this type of technology is going to be needed for it to be you know, 100% useful. But if anyone at all is using it, it's better than nothing. Basically, once you exchange tokens with someone, it goes into a database. Anyone that you've exchanged tokens with gets uh, a positive test result for COVID, then they'll log it into the app and that token will be associated with a positive result and alert everyone who's come in contact with that person without identifying anyone in the process. Right. So interesting. If we have any listeners in Virginia that might download this app and use it, let us know, reach out again, tweet at us. I'd love to know your experience with it. If it's, you know, seems to be working. Uh, if you actually get any kind of notifications that lets you know you've been in contact with someone, you'd be curious to know. A couple of things worth noting is um, if you're in the iOS 14 beta, it's not going to work properly. That API is either broken or just not turned on. There is a setting screen now, but it still does nothing. And if you're not in Virginia, it's not going to serve you too much of a purpose. So if you're in California and download the app, it'll work. But um, the only way to notify the app of a positive result is in Virginia, they'll give you a specific uh, code to put into the app, whereas might be different in other states. All right. Well, there was also all this news this past week about who's going to buy TikTok. (laughs) So President Trump here in the United States demanded that TikTok sell its U.S. arm by September 15th or that the United States was going to ban uh, TikTok from the country where we would not be able to use the app or download it here in the United States anymore unless TikTok sells. Then there were rumors that Apple might have been in the running to buy TikTok. And that lasted for about a day. And then Apple apparently made a statement I believe to Axios or about the Axios report and Apple made it clear it was not interested in buying TikTok. And so now, well, first of all, if you don't know, TikTok is a social media network and an app that does videos a lot like Vine used to do. And Instagram just tried to add the Reels feature to their app to compete with TikTok. So the social media app, it is now looking like Microsoft is in talks to buy TikTok, at least the U.S. branch of the company, possibly for $30 billion. This is just very interesting to me. I am hard-pressed to know why or what Microsoft wants with this kind of social media app and the headaches it would bring. I'm trying to think, you know, Google, I guess, is probably one of the big four, and I'm talking about big four being you know, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, obviously being all about social networking, but Google has tried its hand in social networking and not really available, unless you consider YouTube a social network. But but for something like TikTok, it just seems very strange that Microsoft would be interested in it. Well, the idea that Microsoft was going for it originated from um, a lot of news reports just saying out of everyone, you know, this is the lesser of the you know five other evils that are out there uh, who could get it because, you know, Snapchat or Facebook or someone integrating TikTok could mean trouble for the users, could mean a lot of data being distributed. And we're running into the same problems that, you know, China's trying to allegedly trying to do with the data. So Microsoft then apparently has confirmed that they're in talks and that just blew my mind that it was even on the table. But I think that it's just going down as a um, kind of like everyone else is in the game. This is a big social media platform that's 
capable of competing with these others only by filling a void maybe left by vine and other uh, smaller video formats um, whereas like it's not going to penetrate youtube it's not going to penetrate facebook user base it's just another uh, social media that people are using actively i mean could it be a flash in the pan could it be a, a myspace where it lasts two or three years and then it disappears the money they're talking about exchanging for this app just seems out of this world. It does not seem like <laughs> anyone would want to spend that amount, especially Microsoft. Well, you know, with the amount, if you're talking about market share and engagement, you know, I would say one age group Microsoft probably doesn't appeal to or has any hand in is like the high school and younger age demographic. And that demographic is probably either on Instagram but their parents are also on Instagram. They're on YouTube for sure, but they're on Snapchat and TikTok. And so maybe it's a way to start appealing to or having access to a younger demographic and market share. But I don't know what then Microsoft would sell them. You know, they're not going to sell Azure business services to a middle schooler or high schooler. And, uh, you know, Microsoft Office is not exactly a, you know, attractive product for for that age group either. Open TikTok from Excel. (laughs) Exactly. Like, I just don't, I don't know. Uh, But when I saw the rumors that, oh, maybe Apple is in talks to buy it. I mean, that just felt so off, you know, and then Apple confirms by saying they have no plans to pursue such a deal. Like, I could not imagine what Apple would have any reason to want to buy something like TikTok. And I remember, I don't know if you remember this, the only foray into the social media was Apple's uh, attempt at Ping. I still remember Steve Jobs announcing Ping as a social component to iTunes as a way to interact with friends and possibly music artists. And that that went away fairly quickly from what I remember. What what year was this? Was this 2012, 2014 timeframe? I vaguely remember it existing. It seems like 2010. Wow. Okay. It might've come out. Yeah. I would, I was nowhere near Apple at the time, but for some reason, maybe there was some hanging on of uh, paying up till, cause I, I wasn't really uh, in, in that world until at least 2014, but I seem to remember something about it. I, I do remember once um, Apple acquired Beats and they came out with Apple Music, there was this very strange social network for musicians inside of there that they tried to do. And everyone was calling out like, oh, no, it's, you know, Ping 2.0. But right. very weird. And there's still like, if you go to the music app and you go to like an artist page, there's kind of, I think you can like follow an artist Right. That's for music releases and like music video announcements. Right. Previously, they could leave status updates and links to album art and hand drawn (laughs) notes. And anyway, Apple is not going to buy TikTok, it looks like. And we'll see. I mean, Microsoft is supposedly in talks. So keep looking on appleinsider.com and see if that uh, goes anywhere. And supposedly, TikTok has a month to figure out somebody to buy it so they can stay in the United States, stay active on people's phones. I just want you to think about like the numbers here though 30 billion dollars right right uh, is, is the upper end whereas apple paid 3 billion dollars for the world's most popular headphone and music client at the time well other than spotify music client wise but beats by dre 3 billion dollars and created a monetizable music service and hardware service out of it and, and he, this is tiktok a video service with ads well, you, you say that. Now I'm going to look up. What's amazing is so Facebook bought Instagram for $1 billion. 
again, that's amazing. Yeah, these are astronomical numbers compared to even the last decade of acquisitions. What ten billion, even being the low end here, it's just what are they want out of this? Like, it, will they ever get a return? What are they going to do with it? Too many questions on the table. So one of the last things to cover this week, Apple actually released a vertical original short film, about nine-minute-long short film. It's called The Stunt Double, I believe. Yes, The Stunt Double. It was, one, shot totally on iPhone 11 Pro, which is super interesting, and uh, even more so that it is a totally vertical cinema. I think it's the first time that... Apple has done something like that, you know, kind of really on purpose. And, and the whole idea is to kind of like proof of concept, vertical cinema is a thing. And, you know, we believe there's a lot of creativity to be had here. And also it's on the 11 Pro. And so it's not, again, nine minute film. We'll put a link in show notes to the article and the film so you can watch it. It's on YouTube, which is also kind of interesting. You know, it's it's funny that even Apple, if they want to release a video or short film that's going to be widely watched, they put it on Google's platform of YouTube. And, you know, talking about is Apple going to buy TikTok and they're not, I would almost believe more that Apple would buy some kind of video service like the Vimeo or something like that where it can actually begin hosting its own videos on a platform that people go to watch that's not Google. Uh, so I just I find that interesting that that's where they, they have to publish this. But you can go watch it. Uh, super interesting. Shot on the iPhone 11 Pro. And uh, I watched it. I enjoyed it. It was interesting. It kind of showed a history of stunt doubles, and it actually told a little story. And uh, I enjoyed it. What did you think about it? it? It was definitely entertaining, uh, worth a watch. And then there's that little five-minute afterwards that you can watch uh, the making of, and it shows off some of the equipment they used. Uh, a lot of looks like handmade uh, boxes and things that they were able to set the phones in to, to track the movements uh, of the uh, actors as they moved around. But the, if you catch the very tiny text at the bottom, it says shot on Filmic Pro using additional hardware accessories that as they have to say, because everyone will say, oh, I can't do that with my phone. But yeah. still incredible that they were able to do it at all using a such a tiny device. I mean, if you look at professional uh, filming equipment, it's, it's still very heavy, very large, and gets very hot. Fun to see what this filmmaker can do like uh, with other films that's been shot on iPhone. Yeah, no. So I was also watching the behind the scenes and you said you watched that too. There's a little behind the scenes video. We'll put that link in show notes too. But it was interesting to see, I think I saw moment lenses, which is like these third party lenses that you can attach to a case on your iPhone and, and use these uh, new style lenses. And I thought that was very interesting uh, to see that being used. Did you catch that in the behind the scenes? Yeah, I, it was the briefest flash, but I definitely saw uh, them screwing on one of the moment lenses. Yeah, so I saw that, and I just thought it was kind of hilarious that you see all these little white dongles everywhere uh, because they're trying to attach third-party like monitors, video monitors, to to be able to see what the phone is actually filming and stabilizers and, I think, microphones sometimes. So it was a little hilarious to see all the little dongles it takes to <laughs> to film with the, the iPhone. Yeah, the, uh, the frame that they chose to uh, put on the front of the making-of video, you can see... The handheld crane connected to what looks like uh, transceivers and then like this little iPhone sitting there and connected to a white <laughs> adapter for HDMI out. And it's just all looped around this this little this uh, rig they've set up to capture that moment. And it's just crazy to think that, you, first of all, you have to think of how you would create the rig and 
build that, but it doesn't look too complex other than maybe the expensive equipment they might be using. But I don't, I don't see this being a problem for some of the amateur filmmakers at home. No, no, not at all. So pretty interesting. Now you put a question here in the notes about, you know, does Quibi do this kind of stuff? And you know, this was Quibi's whole platform. Quibi's thing was like, Hey, we're going to do short form video, 10 to 15 minutes, and it's going to be vertical and horizontal. And this is where I think it falls short. You know, Quibi has not blown up as some revolutionary way to watch video. But what is interesting is, you know, with Quibi, if you go to watch a show, and I've watched a couple shows just to see what it's like, you can watch it both ways. So if you rotate your device horizontal, That's right. you get a full landscape video like you would watch. And if you go vertical, they try to reframe the video and you can watch it vertical as well. In my experience, it seems like not ideal either way. <laughs> if you're watching it horizontal, it feels like there's not enough in the shot to justify this wide landscape thing. And that's because they're filming it because they all know you might watch it in vertical mode. And then in vertical mode, you'll feel like you're missing something because you could tell it's like cropped in almost. You've fallen into that toaster fridge uh, analogy now where it's got the components <laughs> of both but can't perform either function very well. Yes, that's exactly right. Kind of like a Surface tablet. But anyway, yes, uh, <laughs> I found like this vertical piece of cinema that Apple just put out, the stunt double, it's really enjoyable and it's, it's because it is shot and edited knowing it will be a vertical-only medium, it takes advantage of being vertical-only. And in some of the behind-the-scenes, you have, like, the prop guy talking about, you know, you could show a gun in a holster from a Western. You know you're going to have a vertical framing, so you can show the whole gun in the holster much closer than if you were trying to show the entire gun and holster in a widescreen landscape-style shot. And they do a lot of interesting things with, uh, like, panning up or panning down. There's a scene or shot of, like, a plane going, and it's it's shooting down onto the, the stunt double guy running. And it's kind of cool because you can see the plane and how it's firing and the guy running, and it's all in the vertical framing. And it they really take advantage of it, and it's made intentionally. And all the little interludes of, like, a film strip going by quickly, you could tell. This was made for vertical consumption, unlike a lot of what you see on Quibi. I think it's interesting to see experimentation in this because any filmmaker or just a video nerd in general is going to be sick at the idea of filming vertically. Uh, they hate Snapchat. They hate this idea of everything being v vertical film. Um, people pull out their phones to at world events or yeah. special occasions and they're filming in vertical and everyone's angry because on the TV, it's just a, a bar of light. And it brings to mind, you know, <laughs> maybe Samsung might be onto something with their rotating TVs, but I still can't think of why would anyone ever pay enough, pay money for a motorized television <laughs> set that rotates while you watch it. But yeah. the, the idea that Apple kind of showed off this whole concept of here's something you can watch exclusively on your phone. It's built for this aspect ratio. What are they going to do with that? It, it would be interesting to see Apple create maybe not a platform, just a way to do that. And uh, clips comes to mind. No, nobody right. ever uses it, but um, <laughs> it's, it's almost missing that feature of actually sharing and reviewing other people's work inside of the clips app. And I think maybe Apple could look into something like that. Yeah, and I think make a prediction here, but I don't think if you you're not going to have feature length films vertical. Oh no, uh, you know I don't think that's coming anytime soon. But to the idea that oh vertical is 
sacrilegious or whatever. Well, you know, if it's anything shorter than 15 or 20 minutes, people are watching it on their phones. Like more people are probably watching YouTube videos on their phone than any other device. And increasingly, again, especially younger generations, like that's, it's just the phone. You know, they're not even, you know, maybe they have a, an iPad or Mac or whatever, but, you know, I see it rarely that someone's like sitting down to consume a piece of video on this wide, beautiful screen. You know, it's usually on the phone. So the idea that you make short films or short things like this, it did not feel long. It felt like a, a good amount of time. I wouldn't want to watch two hours of it just because I think taking advantage of that the vertical framing, it does kind of mess with you a little bit after a while. Like if I was watching that on a big screen or something or watching it for two hours, you might get a little weirded out. But but I think, you know, this, there's a, a market here or a, there's a room for short form vertical video. Well, here's an idea. I mean, this was nine minutes and modern cartoons, they're usually divided over 20 minutes and two 10 minute segments. So this is, I think of Apple TV plus. What if there was content that Apple created specifically to view on the iPhone for their Apple TV Plus program. I think that would fit perfectly. I mean, 10-minute animated videos or or even live-action videos of this kind could definitely fit into the platform. I don't know. I don't think we're going to see anything else ever uh, in a vertical format promoted by Apple, but it was definitely an interesting experiment. Yeah, and it would be interesting. I mean, if they did vertical stuff on like Apple TV Plus, Damien Chazelle, they have this deal to make Apple TV Plus original content. They made this deal, I think, like a couple of years ago. So it would be interesting if they have vertical short-form video or TV shows on Apple TV Plus. Would you still be able to watch it on your Apple TV, on your wide TV? I mean, I imagine so, but I don't think that would be a great experience. Like many of us have watched, you know, people's home videos in portrait on a TV as they try to airplay it. So be curious uh, to see where, where that goes. So check it out. Links in show notes. Watch the film. Let us know what you think. Tweet at us and let us know your uh, if you liked it, if you like that form of video, and what you think the future might be. And the last little piece of news, I'll just throw it out here, is the Pixel 4a was launched uh, on Monday of this past week, $350. And you know if you're a Mac user or you're all in the Apple world, but you still use an Android phone, you know, this is a very interesting phone. Uh, the price point is pretty amazing, 350 bucks for this kind of phone. Again, it's it doesn't have all the camera specs as the Pixel 4. It uh, doesn't have the, you know, like metal and glass uh, components. It is a plastic phone. But, man, 350 bucks for a Google Pixel 4a, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, I mean, if you're in the market for uh, a cheaper phone that has good specs and uh, a good version of Android that's uh, you built for the phone kind of thing. It's definitely not a bad idea. It's just, again, it's Android. You have to be in that market. And I'm not sure I trust Google's longevity for supporting phones, especially hardware. It's just very fleeting, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. And also their penchant for killing off just random services or products as a whole, i.e. Google Wave, Google Plus, Google, all the different things. <laughs> so, uh, Allo, uh, the chat service. So yeah, who knows? They definitely believe in experimenting in public rather than in private. Yeah, exactly. I just hope the one service that they have not really touched in a while, but I hope they do keep around is Google Voice. I do use Google Voice as like a secondary line. So maybe I shouldn't have even spoke it. Maybe speaking it will bring it attention. So never mind. Forget I even said it. You've cursed it now. I know, I know, it's going. 
But anyway, listeners, let us know what you think about any of the things we discussed today. Tweet at Wes or myself. Our Twitter handles are in the show notes. You can email us or comment on the post when it goes up on appleinsider.com slash podcast. You can find all our podcast episodes there. Don't forget to check out the other show on Apple Insider too, HomeKit Insider, where we talk about all about HomeKit devices and smart home and the cameras that are coming out, HomeKit Secure Video, Hubs, troubleshooting projects. It's a great show. comes out every Monday. So check out HomeKit Insider as well. And we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review if you haven't done it yet in Apple Podcasts for this show and HomeKit Insider. You can do that in the Apple Podcast app right on your device. And so give us five-star rating and review there. We'd appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.